Thanks so much for dropping in, and welcome to the first episode. This week, I have three episodes that are coming back to back, and on top of that, my Petsy Pod episode is newly minted, fresh off the research corner, and ready to go right now. And today I'm talking to Jerry Arms about Charlie Chaplin. Somehow we ended up with 16mm films and medieval stuff, of course. In this podcast, I interview scholars, enthusiasts, professors, amateurs, librarians, students, academics, and just so many more. I love talking to people who are passionate about a topic, whether it's a location they visited, something they studied, or anything in history, really. As you may have noticed, not all the episodes are Canadian history, but I am. So yeah, I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. Isn't it time for some history, eh? I guess you already know that Charlie Chaplin was born in 1889 on April 16. I do. He's born in uh, London, England. Okay. Do you know who his parents were? I know of them. I don't know what his parents' names are. Do you know what their names were? I don't know their names, but I do know <laughs> they were both actors. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, he started really young and what he started to do, uh, and he got into film, gosh, very early in his career. He ended up coming into uh, the U.S., into California. Yeah, just, well, his dad died when he was 10. Around 12, he came to the States. Yeah, so his first film, I think, was in 1912, 1913. 1910. And 1910, <laughs> even going further A little back, earlier, yeah. Which was, uh, he just started to make a huge impact, and I always give the guy credit. For, they always say that he was the first guy to start affecting the fall. The fall? What is that? Just the fall in general, like the physical act of falling and falling properly to not hurt yourself. So basically, he was the first stuntman. Yeah, I think so. I think he does have the credit for that. Absolutely. Do you have a huge collection at home with some film? I've watched, uh, I think, all of his films. I'm bad with names of the films, but I, I've, I've watched all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, I tried to watch them sequentially. And uh, when I was younger as a kid and into my teenage years, I was always into physical comedy, which I don't do much of now. I must kind of regret that. Mm -hmm. But I loved the silly nature of physical comedy and I think that's why I was attracted to both what he did with the what any of the guys from back then did and even like where Jim Carrey brought it like even in the future I, I've always really enjoyed it and I used to hurt myself constantly and try to just be the funniest <laughs> guy ever when I was in I was just a clown constantly through school but in a safe way usually yeah, yeah. try my best to be but yeah, like just to see him doing the things that he had done, and it looks so much sillier and fast forward because of the way, the nature of how they filmed it. Yeah. And I couldn't replicate that in real life. You just can't walk that quickly and do the silly mm -hmm. stunts. But I thought it was really interesting the way they filmed it and the way it looked. It seemed like you were using more of your imagination without any audio. You just mm -hmm. had your physical actions. So all the films were silent films. Yeah, a huge, huge majority of films until he started getting into what they called talkies in like the 50s. It might mm -hmm. have been late 40s or early 50s. And he did uh, movies like uh, Limelight, where he was actually 1952. Just, yeah. 1952, yeah. And he mm -hmm. started, he was just talking. And when I watched them sequentially, I never expected to come across that. Mm -hmm. I just had the collection. And when I got to that, I thought, oh my gosh, there's his voice. And he was a really, really well-spoken man. And I was so impressed with that. With a very strong British accent. I didn't expect that either, yeah. knowing that he was British. Just it didn't come together. And then you hear him and he speaks so well. And then he had done The Dictator. Mm -hmm. And his speech was really, really well said. Beautifully written. Very powerful. Had a really wonderful message. And with his accent and his, his persona, yeah, the, just the yeah. nature of him was just uh, amazing to see such a silly character become such a powerful one in a neat movie like that. So The Dictator was 1940, so mm -hmm. I guess we're talking world wars and yeah. you know, kind of a turbulent times in our history. Yeah. 
And I think it was a time that was a really great time to make a movie like that where people could have a couple of laughs. What was it about since you've seen it and I have Basically playing Hitler. And instead of it being the swastika, all of the patches are two X's side by side. And it's just funny because the way he lightens the mood with being Hitler is that when nobody's around, he seems to like to dance and sing. And he's kind of very flamboyant. And the very famous scene is where he takes a massive globe that is probably five feet round. And it's obviously inflated, but you probably don't notice it until he picks it up and then he starts to dance with it almost in like a ballerina sense. And at one point he sits on his desk, which is, you know, such a monumental desk, the way it's designed with all the architecture of this room around it. And he gets up onto his desk, he tosses the globe up into the air, and then with his butt in the air, he bounces the globe back into the air and kind of looks up at it like really like all these feminine natured maneuvers that he's doing. It's so hilarious the way that they had written it. And at the time, must have been so controversial. I can't even imagine. His trademark was definitely not just his comedic style, but also a, a playful nature. Very as much you've so. Said. Playful, I think, is the best way to describe Charlie Chaplin. I think that he was definitely he was an intellect for sure. Uh, when you saw him in interviews, which were pretty rare, mm-hmm. he seemed like a very intelligent man, obviously, and he was wanted to start his own production company and just change everything and the way everything was done. And people told him constantly, "You couldn't do it." But luckily, he created the character. Uh, that he did with the shoes and the old jacket and apparently you know from all the stories nobody really knows for sure how he came up with the character but it was just grab some shoes and a coat and this and that and ran out the door he was actually played by robert downey jr in the movie called chaplin which they touch on the the way he came up with the character yeah his creative process yeah and he said Mm -hmm. you know uh, i think it was like the production manager the director was yelling at him he said get out here i need you to be funny now And he just was in this room of stuff, so he grabbed these silly shoes and this cane and this hat and ran out and tried it. And they all, initially, they were really upset with him because they were filming. And when he walked out the door, he looked ridiculous. But then they saw that not only the audience was loving it, but the cast members and crew were thinking it was hilarious. They were in stitches, yeah. What? Okay, let's try this again. And I don't know that it worked particularly well, but he ended up doing his own thing and people loved it anyways, so. And that became his trademark. 100%. Yeah, totally. So when he did Limelight, it was like a story of his life as someone who's no longer able to do comedy. No spoilers here intentionally, but if Mm -hmm. you haven't watched it, it's too bad. He actually plays a scene where he gets stuck in a drum. Okay. And he ends up dying. In the drum. In in the play of him. So they carry him off. And then when he's stuck in the drum, he's actually having like, I think, a heart attack or something. He's dying and he he ends up dying. He ends up dying for real. He ends up passing away in in the movie Limelight. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can tell it's about his life and it shows him, you know, putting on the grease stick mustache or the press on mustache and then he goes and runs out and does a thing and it stresses of his life and his love life. It's really interesting. Hmm. It's really neat. It was a perspective that you never see. And again, he's he's talking the whole time. So you feel like you're seeing the true behind the scenes nature of the character. Instead of having to use his physicality to show whatever emotion or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. He got Hmm. to use his intelligence for what seemed like the first time, which was really neat. Really well spoken. Well, most comedic actors tend to be very, very intelligent. It seems that way. I think that comedy is is really heavily, um, I don't know how to phrase that. Underappreciated. Yeah. yeah, in, In the amount of intelligence that it takes to be funny, but to be funny the right way. Mm-hmm. is tough. And I mean, I used to think that I was funny when I was a teenager, and I think we all can have those moments where we think we're funny. But well, really, we're inappropriately funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or just you're not reading the energy of the room correctly, and you mm-hmm. think you're having a good time, so that means you're funny. And uh, it was when I started to make videos online that I realized that it's much harder to be funny without a crowd. So in that instance, uh, still to this day, I've got it on my bucket list to do some stand-up comedy. I've got so much written and it's just different. I'm great with a person or I'm great with a crowd because you get bounce back from people. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how I'll do when there's just me, a microphone, and people just listening. And I go, oh. 
and their reaction might not be instantaneous. Right, so then you just have to run through kind of bullheadedly and get to your next set or your next subject. So I guess Charlie Chaplin did inspire you a little bit. 100%. Uh, through the physical comedy and then seeing his intelligence later on, mm-hmm. I was always curious to know what my furthest ability in physical comedy would be, mm-hmm. and then I couldn't find a place for it. In modern day, it's not mm-hmm. so comedic to be. But you went into film. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, and as a result of that, started the company that we run. And you do have a passion for old film. I do, absolutely. I bought two films on 16 mil, 16 millimeter, which is real to real. I'm sure anybody that's listening to this podcast would know a little bit about 16 millimeter, but if not, it's 16 millimeters wide, perforations down the side, and it runs through a very intricate machine that blasts light through it and reads the sound off the sides of that little strip of film, which is, you know, one, two, or sometime, well, about one or two kilometers long per film. Each reel will hold 1,800 feet or more. I've seen slightly longer ones. That was built around Charlie Chaplin's time too. I mean, it's related to what he was dealing with at that time. Yeah, he would have been shooting on uh, either 16 or 32 mil film. And when they say, you know, that's not going to make it through the cutting room, it was literally them sitting cutting film to edit the things, which is just unbelievable that they went through such a physical work to make a film happen and then had to make copies of this physical So our copy and cut that we use in our computers Ex- comes from... That's where it is. <laughs> that's exactly it, yeah. Actually copying a section somehow, or cutting yeah. a section and repasting it. And Yeah, even in like uh, Photoshop, which I'm sure you've used, mm-hmm. uh, the layering is such a... If you know how the layering would work in real life, it's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. If you can... Uh, picture it. <laughs> yeah, if you can picture what you're seeing, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll understand what the layering techniques are. Like in the darkroom days. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know what, as a photographer nowadays, and again, I'm sure you can relate to this, Mm -hmm. a lot of people say, you know, it must be nice to have things like Photoshop and Lightroom so that when you shoot, you can change the exposure and mm-hmm. such when back in the day they just shot it. And I said, well, no, that's it's actually kind of a big misconception. Mm-hmm. Using dark rooms, they used to change the exposure and do all kinds of little tweaks in them to make their final product. So it's just a different way of developing now. And you don't want to be spent, well, some people might, but you don't want to be spending hours in front of your computer when you can no. be taking a picture instead. No. So why not compose it, get it right in camera as best as possible? And... Yeah, exactly. So the philosophy hasn't really changed much, I think. No, you got to do a good job shooting so that you don't sit in a dark room or in a booth computer computer yeah, yeah sitting there sipping coffee in your pajamas for four days straight yeah that's not pleasant either <laughs> no would want to do that it's much better to be around real people <laughs> yeah but the physicality of film is great the value of it continues to climb i still think to this day that film is going to come back a little stronger than it started to but i think it's going to come back i know that we were talking about vinyl mm-hmm. had made a resurgence i think about two years ago it, it actually outsold digital sales And I think that film will come back too because there's a component to film that just isn't recreated digitally. And the Mm -hmm. quality, I think it's always discounted, but the quality of, let's say, 16 mil, like the films, uh, when people show up, they're very excited to see that the quality of one of the films that I'll play is very good. The only way I can explain that is that when you would go to a theater, the film is 35 mil, same Mm -hmm. as a 35 mil, like just camera to take pictures. And that used to be projected onto a 200 foot wide screen. So if I'm shooting something off of 16 mil, you're only taking half that size. So I don't have a hundred foot screen. Mm -mm. I'm taking that really good half quality, condensing it down and maybe putting it on a hundred inch screen in front of a group of people. The quality of 16 mil film, if scanned, could be something like 2K, maybe 3K resolution. 
better depending on how well it was shot. So our first viewing of Dirty Dancing was phenomenal because people saw it and the music is analog. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really crisp, really clear. It's got all the low tones, the high tones, the dynamic range. I think one of the most phenomenal things I've seen on film was when I watched the movie Platoon. They go through the jungle and the greens of all of the trees. There's such, such a difference from the light tones to the dark tones and the, the range of green in there. Mm -hmm. It almost looks three-dimensional. And I thought, there are so many films that I now want to see on film again versus digitally. So are they remastering some of these old films into a digital version with that feeling of the 16 mil a little bit? They, they try to synthesize it. But fun fact, if you were to go back and, uh, like when they say that they're remastering, say, Star Wars, they're not really doing a whole, well, I mean, they... Obviously, they do a lot of work. They do a lot of work, mm -hmm. but to rescan it at a higher resolution will give you a humongous increase over how people have been watching it. Basically, it breaks down to uh, your television, my television, or maximum 4K, mm -hmm. but the original Star Wars in the 70s, if they wanted to scan it to 8, 10, or 15K, they still could because it was shot on 35 mil. You're talking probably... Probably bare minimum high quality I would say 15k resolution so, so we can't even see that can't yet. even see it but that's also why people used to go to the theaters because even on a 200 foot screen the quality was still phenomenal now people have a TV that's 4k and they think well this is as good as it'll get and I'm like oh, <laughs> uh, maybe <hold> not. <laughs> bring back some of the old Charlie Chaplin movies yeah exactly and even those scanned at high resolution still look phenomenal and that's mm -hmm. where my collection is it's all like a higher resolution scan of the originals and they look awesome they mm -hmm. look excellent on but your 4k TV <laughs> on my 4k TV yeah <laughs> So you need the 15K TV. Yeah, yeah, I need to really upgrade. I'm falling behind. Well, they had Prime Day, so you might have missed your mark. I might have missed it. Yeah, so I think that I'll always stick to trying to collect more 16mm films. I got five imported from Australia from a gentleman whose dad used to work for a movie distribution company. And I'll tell you what, uh, you don't want to know what it costs to import 87 pounds of movies. Oh my eight, goodness. 18,000 kilometers across the world. <laughs> we made a small calculation which doubled the cost of it when it got yeah. to my door. And I was just, it was unbelievable. It was staggering. That's quite the Christmas gift. <laughs> right, exactly. But it was, a, it was a business endeavor so that we could do it. Mm -hmm. And we have five really good blockbuster films that are really well known including Dirty Dancing and Platoon mm -hmm. and a couple of others and the quality of them is great it's the techniques of learning how to maintain that film I guess you can't put it in sunlight and it would be yeah. just like negatives on a camera dark cool mm -hmm. um, you can't just run it through humidity it. yeah you can't mm -hmm. run it through just any old projector if the projector is dirty or it has mold yeah, it'll create streaks down the entire film and ruin it. Mm -hmm. So let's say Dirty Dancing, if I were to put that online, it would probably go for somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000. Wow. So when I run it through projector, I would never run it through projector I haven't maintenanced myself first. Mm -hmm. So even when I would rent one from the library, they're the only people I know that rent out <laughs> uh, projectors, which is shocking. Um, but I also do the maintenance for them. So we have a little bit of a deal that helps yeah. out. Um, I clean both of the projectors so that I can play my films through it. And over time... Uh, not only do little scratch marks happen, but your film will actually start to shrink as it dries over 20 oh, to 30 years. Interesting. So then what happens is those perforations get a little tighter. It starts to grab. The sound is And different. it can rip it. It'll warble the sound. Can you prevent that? The products that you use to clean are mm -hmm. also a lubricant so mm -hmm. that it doesn't scratch. Mm -hmm. um, and keeping your projector clean will help. But if it does get to the point where you've noticed that your film is shrinking just slightly and you can take uh, a small tool to measure it, I'm like a mic micrometer, uh, you can take the entire film and put it into a solution, which is not cheap, and leave it there for eight months. I'd imagine it's similar to the darkroom products and heavy chemicals. Probably, and... <laughs> yeah, something you don't want to breathe. So, yeah, something and, you need good ventilation. And that's where I came up to my issue. I thought, well, I could do that, but am I going to leave this for eight months? Eight months, yeah. And have somebody not ever go you near it. need a storage it. locker somewhere. Something. Mm -hmm. And I just don't With have ventilation. the facilities yeah. for that. So, so um, now you're just doing the preventative maintenance on. That's right, film. yeah. 
And uh, you know what? Some projectors are more particular than others. So I'm actually going to be purchasing another 16mm projector tomorrow from the Sudbury Art Gallery because that one is identical to the ones I've used in the past. And they don't pull on the perforations even though it's slightly shrunken. Clearances are just different. So you can play the other five films that I have where I can only play one of them right now without okay. renting one. Yeah. So yeah, very interesting. Uh, it's a labor of love mm -hmm. in modern day because it wasn't my parents or your parents. It was our grandparents that dealt with this mm -hmm. stuff. If that. They had to probably had a little bit of money. It couldn't be during the Great Depression. So, right. Yeah. Mid-50s, families started getting into using 16 millimeter and yeah. it wasn't the norm. 8 millimeter would have been. 16 mm -hmm. millimeter was usually used for like television production, right? Mm -hmm. But the folks that wanted to spend a little bit more on splurge, my goodness, some of the uh, conversions that I've done of people in this area. Like a lot of people expect 16 mill to look like glitchy and kind of junky and like mm -hmm. all those streaks of light yes. coming through it but when you see someone that knew what they were doing in the 50s it's so nice to see 16 mil film from where we live because you're used to seeing california and the coast and sure. all these things and i think well what does up north look like in 1953 i've seen streets from where i live and you can't even recognize them that's the only reason i do the conversions you don't make any money from doing it it's a labor of love, playing with the splicing tapes and trying to get it to run through the projector. But uh, the quality of the images of, I've got a friend of mine who is in his 50s now. It's him and his brothers and his sisters and cousins playing by the lake. The water looks like real water. It looks like you're looking at the real lake. Mm -hmm. And they're swimming around. And I thought, what a phenomenal quality product Well, I think there's a loss probably because I remember my dad had slides back in the day. Mm. Right. Mm. And I asked him after they moved out, I said, where did you, what did you do? He's like, I think I threw them all out. Oh, and and I was that. like, what? I mean, there's probably childhood pictures on there. Yep. You know, my, my dad's from another generation. And the time it took to put those into the slides. Right. You're taking your 35 mil and you're yeah. cutting them up and yeah. sticking them in. And then you watch them and you're like, why would you just... And I remember as a kid that clicking sound of oh, that yeah. wheel turning. Click, click, click. Yeah. My parents used to, we used to look at these slides and I have vague memories of them. I would have been very young the last few times. Yep. But and that was the only way you could look at pictures yeah. as a group. Yeah. You no, were looking absolutely. through a little loop on a, mm -hmm. on a yeah. light table. Yeah. And it was so, always the wrong color <laughs> unless you projected it. Yeah, yeah. And then you get a couple that were upside down yeah. and everyone would giggle oh, and yeah. you'd continue on. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a nostalgia to that and also the quality of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, you know, if I had the ability to now shoot on 16 mil and develop, I definitely would. Are but... there any directors now that are shooting sort of film? Well, yeah. You've got uh, Quentin Tarantino that's shooting on 70 mil. Okay. which is extraordinary quality. That's mm -hmm. uh, that's normally what you'd see at an IMAX is okay. 70 mil. So he started shooting his movies on there. Interstellar came out. And what happened was all of the directors, uh, whole movie industry was telling all of the theaters, okay, we're done with film. It's just too much. We're going digital. It'll be that much easier. So all of these places decided to convert to digital. And mm -hmm. just to give you an idea of the price of that, at our local theater, I talked to the manager and he said to convert one theater out of the eight that we have, something like that eight yeah. or ten we have mm -hmm. ten theaters to convert one to digital without lenses just the projector mm -hmm. was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars it's crazy so you had to do that to everyone then what starts to happen is you know then there's maintenance ten years later things, all right? of a sudden there's a director that's saying tell you what if you fire up your old projectors and run my movie on 70 mil this mm -hmm. is what he did we'll release that movie first Wow. On film. So then all of a sudden, you're looking for yeah. a projectionist that can come back and fire this thing up. You're mm -hmm. finding parts to try to get them back together. And then the whole movie industry is now in an uproar because he's shooting all of his movies again on 70 millimeter. And, and every theater is going, come on, what's going on here? So I think that, I, like I was saying earlier, I think the film's definitely going to have a resurgence. It's going to come back in popularity. I think filmmakers, I think they love using it. They see it. a quality to it, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you watch even one of his movies digitized, it still has a better image mm -hmm. than digital. 
Yeah. Like the range of color. The it's got this of... grainy film texture-ish mm-hmm. nature to it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it in its entirety, but when you watch one of his movies, you can mm-hmm. tell it was shot in film, even though you're watching a digital version. Some theaters, I guess, still don't have their projectors. Yeah, that's right. And mm-hmm. most don't. Okay. But the way they got the, the light to shine so bright across a 200-plus mm-hmm. foot screen was that they had a large convex mirror mm-hmm. and they had an arc rod, just like you would weld with, that they would light. So there was a large barrel mm-hmm. on the projectors and then a ventilation system to suck all of the heat. Essentially the same as a welding rod, mm-hmm. but it's designed to not flicker and to have constant light for the entirety of a movie. And it just sits there and it burns into like a little ashtray the whole time, yeah. but it's very hot so they have to ventilate it. And that's what lit a movie. So that's why you can't, mm-hmm. even one of my 16 mil projectors, if your film gets jammed and stops, you have three seconds before it starts to melt a hole through your yeah. precious film. And the same was in theaters. It was like a, a welding rod. So if it stopped, it was done. So those film operators were very important. They couldn't take any very breaks. So. If it started to collect in there, you have seconds to fix, open up the side of the projector, and you pop everything aside. It's like threading the eye of a needle, mm-hmm. but in reverse. It's just, it can become such a nightmare. Then you rip it, then you have to re-splice it, go onto the, the, the take-up spool in the back. So if that happened during a movie production, that would be a big boo-boo. I wonder if, let's say during Charlie Chaplin, since we are still talking about him to some degree, if they're at the theater and they're watching a movie and it would stop, Mm -hmm. I wonder if they were used to that, if they had sort of a patience for... I don't think it happened often, but yeah, I think that those audiences were were ready to... To wait. To wait, yeah. (laughs) I think even now it's in the same situation. When people have seen me set up, I think they see how much work goes into just the setup and that is a physical process. And I Mm -hmm. think that in Chaplin's era, people would have known the same and they were just so happy to see a film. Mm -hmm. It was so new at that time. What an interesting concept to go to this massive room and somehow this machine project a picture in front of you that you couldn't see anywhere else. So yeah, I think the audiences probably would have had some patience for that whole situation. Just give us the rest of the show. I don't think they would just get tossed out. I want my money back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) They may have said it. Who knows? (laughs) And based on popcorn, I'm sure they would have still made money. So (laughs) just come back again, folks. And Charlie Chaplin, his movies, like you said, he did some in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Did he film some in Britain also? Not that I know of. No? Yeah, he became famous in the U.S. And then between Charlie Chaplin and the U.S. somewhere, I don't know if it was the film industry, uh, they had a falling out at some point, and then he wouldn't return. And the only time he did come back before he had passed away, I think in 88? 77. Um, 77? <laughs> it was a double number, yeah. Yeah, 77. Um, yeah, he only came back to accept an award, and it was, a, it was a really big thing. He had a standing ovation from the whole crowd, because that's the first time that he had been on American soil since years and years past. He lived uh, a life uh, with his family, kind of in solitude for the last years of his life, it seems, uh, based on everything that I've seen, and, and that ended up kind of being like... I don't know a if recluse? Was, <laughs> a recluse, yeah, and not coming back to the place where everybody knew him, which yeah. was kind of sad. But a lot of people in the industry through those years were kind of like that. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Abbott Costello earlier. Lou Costello died kind of... In our pre-conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lou Costello kind of died. You keep saying earlier and people are going to say, wait a minute, we yeah, didn't wait. hear that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't miss anything. <laughs> Sorry. Um... Yeah. yeah, but Abbott Costello, uh, Lou Costello passed away. Uh, Bud Abbott, his partner, actually ended up rubbing two nickels together by the time he passed away. He had no money whatsoever. And they didn't get along for a long duration. And then they did this really interesting feature on television. It was called Lou Costello, This Is Your Life. It was a series that they used to do in, I think, 40s or 50s. I'm not sure of the time. And they interviewed him. And as a surprise, Bud Abbott showed up. And, you know, they even made mention of it. You could see it was like he caught him off guard. It was the most interesting little segment. It's too bad that people in the industry like that. We see such a fun, happy side of Charlie Chaplin. And yet he was, like, banished from the film industry. And So, yeah, very interesting life for a guy that we see so little of on the screen. 
And Abbott and Costello, they were a little past the time of Charlie Chaplin. Were they inspired yeah. by him, possibly? Oh, gosh. You know what? I think that Lou Costello's comedy is very similar. Very slapstick comedy. Uh, very physical. Uh, for a larger guy, he used to toss himself around quite a bit. Kind of like the Three Stooges. Yeah. It would have been uh, Mo, I believe. Mm-hmm. The bigger guy. Just getting tossed around, you know. And I'm sure that's not easy on your body. I guess you're doing it for film. I understand that. But, oh, my gosh. Like, these guys must be just going home to... Uh, Bruises. <laughs> oh, everywhere. I can't even imagine. Yeah, so they were definitely later on in time, like uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. 60s, but uh, they, they shot so many films in such a short period of time. One of their favorite skits that most people don't know about, they always did Who's On First, which was mm-hmm. huge, but they also did one called The Dying Routine, where his uncle Herman worked at the Kurt Dry Cleaning Plant, and uh, it was just a plan where it's just like Who's On First, where he, he was saying that his uncle had to go up to the 13th floor to die. Dying like you go to die when you die. He's dying because he has to die to live. That's how he made his living. <laughs> Anyways, this whole thing, I, I, I memorized it back in the day and I wanted to make a video of me trying to do it and just doing kind of an homage to them because it wasn't something that ever became televised or anything. Mm-hmm. But it was something that they wrote and they just never finished. So it's funny because it seems like that slapstick comedy, whether it was Charlie Chaplin that was the innovator mm-hmm. or not, I mean, I'm sure there's some thoughts on that. And it seems as though a lot of that slapstick comes from overseas more than in North America. Interesting. I'd have to look up Groucho Marx because he was probably running a parallel with Charlie Chaplin. And he's North American? Gosh, I don't know. I don't know much about Groucho Marx. I know the look of him. Mm -hmm. I know some of his more famous stunts, like him hanging from a clock, you know, those types of things. Mm -hmm. But uh, Was that Big Ben? It may have been Big Ben. (laughs) Which means he's not North American. Oh, yeah, no, I, mm, no, I don't think so. And his stunts look like, gosh, you know what? I'm trying to think of the films now, but you know, based on what it looks like, I wouldn't have known what the difference between America and Europe would look like based on cars or the structures. So, so yeah, I don't know. That's a really interesting point. A lot of slaps, well, slapstick, I would say, because of Charlie Chaplin, definitely did originate there then on film, anyhow, guaranteed. When you Great say slapstick, point. I always think of Mr. Bean. I was a oh huge Mr. Bean huge. fan. And I love the fact that he didn't really talk. That's it. That that was the best part of Mr. Bean. Yep. And then you see him in an interview and you just say, wow, this guy's intelligent. This guy's, <laughs> yeah. he's an engineer. He's so intelligent so, and yeah. so Loves interesting. Cars. I know. Yeah. And he tells ridiculously funny stories. I thought his comedy was hilarious because it, when you don't speak, it leaves so much to the imagination. And I think you're leaving your viewer with the ability to feel like they've pieced the puzzle together. Mm-hmm. And moment after moment, you've got that feeling of accomplishment. Like, I get it. Oh, I get it. Oh, do you get what he's doing? You know, you're always kind of looking at everybody yeah. else. And I'm like, do you get it, though? Do you see what he just did? So it's almost a community kind of 100%. vibe when you're watching that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. A couple of the concepts that I have for my photography, and I've mentioned this to a select few of people, actually comes from the books of Where's Waldo. Because in terms of viewership per page in time, it knocks it out of the park. And that's where you get that feeling of, oh, I have a challenge. Here I go. And then you stare at one individual page for, you know, five, ten minutes sometimes when Mm -hmm. you were younger until you find it. And it's like you've pieced together a puzzle, but all you have is one image to work with. And it's just, it's a lot of imagination. And some of the skits that Rowan Atkinson did as Mr. Bean is just phenomenal. Even his live performances, immaculate timing. He does one where he's playing an imaginary set of, like, air drums. But I don't know if there's another guy playing them behind him. (laughs) I mean, if he tripped, I thought it was an audio track, and then all of a sudden he'd fall out of sync. But he didn't, and it was perfect. It blows me away every time I see that same sketch. I can't think of what it's called, but he even did one at the Olympics. It was the huge opening ceremony and the whole orchestra is there and then you hear the opening to that cliche song that they use for the beginning of Olympics back in the 80s and it starts out with that one note dun, 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 dun. and it cuts over and it's Rowan Atkinson as Mr. Bean playing on a keyboard but he's not paying attention. He's looking around <laughs> the room and yawning and sneezing and he's doing other things but has to keep his finger there yeah. and he starts to do it with his toe 
and this whole orchestra is there. Like, it's bonkers that they allowed him to do it mm -hmm. just to play his character. And, of course, him driving on the roof of his car with a broom and a sofa chair. Didn't he meet the queen, too, in it? He skit? did. Yeah. Yeah. And in one of his skits, he bowed because he was so nervous and he knocked her out. <laughs> <laughs> but in real life, I believe, yes, I think that he has met her. I think so, yeah. He yeah. must have. I think that for sure he's definitely the modern... Charlie Chaplin. I don't even know where you'd come up with that. It's a total originality. You'd have to be inspired by someone like Charlie Chaplin, mm -hmm. for sure. I wonder, we're talking a lot about film, and prior to film, it would have been live theater. There yeah. must have been some very memorable names, too, in live theater prior to Charlie Chaplin. That's very interesting. What an interesting topic to research in the future mm -hmm. is the pre-film comedies that mm -hmm. would have happened. Because I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of those ended up being reincarnated on film later on because they had mm -hmm. seen the potential, right? Because there's a lot of writings of plays many, many, many years yeah. you know, prior to film. You know, that actually makes me think of the one thing I miss the most at theaters, even in modern day. They don't have curtains that mechanically open anymore. You know, the concept of a stage being turned into a screen, but they still made you kind of feel like it was a stage where there was a closed you curtains. You mean at a movie theater? Yeah. I completely you, forgot about that. Most yeah. people do. And it was just the one thing that you always waited for. You're like, and you're like, oh, it's yeah. going. And then everyone would get quiet. Now all they have is they'll dim the lights, which is, okay. And then they have that thing, please turn off your cell phones. And then <laughs> yeah, everybody right. stops talking and that's starts right, yeah. watching. But before, when those curtains opened, everybody knew. That was time to button up, keep it quiet. Phones weren't a thing back then. And uh, I miss that. I miss that so much, the physicality. And I, I can't even imagine what it took for a theater to just maintain these silly curtains that really had no purpose. Somebody had to dust them. <laughs> Somebody had to wash them and repair them if the moths came in, yeah. you know. John, have you gone over there and cleaned the curtains? Did you steam clean those? Um, they're Are 100 feet tall and 70 feet wide, each one of them. Get on that. It's the window cleaners of the theater. Oh my gosh, yeah. I've never thought of the maintenance of those, but I'm sure that's probably why And there's why a motor. They... Yeah. Or was it a string that they pulled? Some kind of pulley system? That's an interesting thing that I've never considered that there may have just been a guy. Well in the Shakespearean days you would imagine there would have been would because have been. they had long tassely strings yep. around the sides. And they would just pull them back, tie them up. I miss the theaters and I miss film. I miss the light of the projector on the window mm -hmm. coming down and the way it just clatters and clicks and clacks. And all the little dust. So, well I tried to get a smoke machine for, oh, a, a, smoke for machine. a first movie night so that you could see the whole light like as if you when people used to be able to smoke in the theaters oh, you would true. see that. But the problem was actually we found out later on and I would have never put this together that the condensation of the smoke on the bulb that lights up a small audio strip on the film. Mm -hmm. And that bulb, it's so hot, running a smoke machine would be different than smoke. Mm -hmm. So the smoke machine was causing that bulb to like pop and crack and we couldn't figure out what was going on. This movie had played a million times great and then we were playing in front of a crowd and it was going... It's making all these noises. We shut off the smoke machine and fanned it away from the projector and it was fine. So you'd have to have a little fan running close to that light bulb. Yeah, to keep all the smoke away from it, mm -hmm. which is almost impossible when you have yeah. smoke machines running in this <laughs> massive room. But, but what a great idea learn. to kind of replicate that old-timey feeling to have yeah. a smoke machine. I wanted three things. I wanted uh, dramatic lighting. So mm -hmm. we lit up the walls with red lights shooting up to the walls. Uh, we blocked off all of the windows. I wanted smoke so that it looked like an old smoky theater. And what was the other thing? Oh, I wanted movie-style popcorn. So I found a company in the U.S. that made the original stuff. And as soon as we fired up our popcorn machine, like a big machine, we gave away popcorn for free and drinks. It was just a donation to get in. And it was the most amazing smell ever. It smelled, looked, and felt like an old theater in a train station. And that place smelled and looked like 
a theater per se, right? You and felt like you were back in the 40s or 50s. You know, I did it as much for me as everybody that was there because <laughs> I just wanted to see if it would come together. And when people showed up, I was so, so excited to do it. It went well. We raised good money for charity, and I can't wait to do like another one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, lots of fun. We'll have to mention it if uh, if you do at some point. Oh my gosh, that would be wonderful yeah. for the people that love you know the classics and film and stuff like that. You must not be the only one doing that. I haven't met a single soul. Really? Not yet. Nobody's no. as passionate as you about film. <laughs> people, I, there are, yeah. but they just don't have the films. And sure. one of the most common things I get is, you know what, you should get such and such a film. And I thought, oh my gosh, if I could just go out and find it. <laughs> Uh, dirty or dancing. have enough money to buy it 100%. because it's not just buying the film; it's shipping the film, making sure it's taken care of. You know, in the plane, overseas, whatnot. Bare minimum, if you're gonna get a decently known, good quality movie, mm-hmm. you're gonna pay eight hundred bucks. That's without shipping. So, and you have to make big... sure it's well taken care of. You might receive yeah. it and it's not in the kind of shape you yeah. expected it to be, and then you might have some work to do to it. Yep. Yeah. So I'm on forums and stuff like that online just trying to find films. The fact that I've got five really well-known blockbuster films, including Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing on 16 mil I have never seen before. I've never seen it come up ever again. Yeah. One of my favorite movies, Back to the Future, it came out. It was sold <laughs> one day later for $2,400. Oh my goodness. And I thought, if I had that money to invest in a heartbeat, I would have bought mm-hmm. it. And the other thing is I'd like to try to find kids' movies because yeah. I'd love to be able to get families out. Most of the yes. stuff that were blockbusters in the 80s that I have and some of the ones from the 30s, they're not really no. family films. But Charlie Chaplin would be fantastic. That would be wonderful. Especially the silent films, obviously. Yeah. So I have cartoons and such, but I don't mm-hmm. think even those are really appropriate for the modern <laughs> generation of kids. If now you pitched a concept of a cartoon where there's a rabbit always being shot at by a guy with a double barrel shotgun, yeah. I don't think it'd go very well. Even a coyote jumping off a cliff. Constantly being battered around by various yeah. objects being thrown at him. Like a guy literally taking explosive TNT and yeah. trying to blow him up. That's generally not a good idea. I found a Monsters, Inc. on 16 mil. And I didn't realize that people were doing conversions of such modern films. Mm -hmm. So I keep my eyes peeled. I'm always on the forums looking. I get almost weekly updates to what people have posted on eBay. And if it's something that I know of that I think would be great for a family movie, Mm -hmm. I would love it. Because I think it's really neat. The first thing you'll see when a kid sees a projector for the first time is they'll go up to the screen and they'll put their hand up and see the shadow of their hand and then realize that it's not a flat screen TV. And they go, oh, it's coming from there. Then their brain explodes and they go, oh my gosh. How is that possible? Yeah, that's yeah. pretty neat. I think it's neat seeing kids do stuff like that. I have lots of funny stories from my children when they were born in the uh, early, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, yep. where my one kid would know what a VHS is. Fast forward 10 years to my last child, yeah. they have no clue. No clue. It's amazing how quickly technology has changed, mm-hmm. specifically in both our parents and our generation. Oh, yes. If I can mention that, I mm-hmm. think that's a really interesting fact for anybody listening. Uh, I don't know how this was never taught in school, and I'm disappointed that it wasn't, and I hope that it becomes something, but back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they needed to add indoor plumbing in Chicago because there was nothing that they could dig down into because it was such a low-lying city. Mm-hmm. They decided to, block by block, originally building by building, lift the entire city of Chicago by four or four and a half feet I think so that they could add the plumbing and stop people from just throwing it onto the road so quite often you'll see pictures back in the day of buildings with staircases going up to them mm-hmm. because they lifted the buildings but not the roads yet oh my goodness and it was kind of neat they'd take an entire city block with hydraulic jacks that they use for the railroad someone would yell everyone would crank it once and then the whole building would go up and there's pictures of people in the building still because they didn't have to no, go no, yeah, for sure. and they're just you know waving at the camera <laughs> while people are lifting this building four feet in the air and then just proceeding to do the rest of the the city and I thought how were you never taught that they lifted a city four and a half feet unbelievable and to me that's the interesting part of history is you might find a tidbit and it blows your mind a little bit that we had that technology or that knowledge yeah 
You can go back very far into even prehistoric days. And it's incredible what they achieved back then. Yeah, which, which seems like they're working with metal and rock, and they came up with some pretty extraordinary things. I think they only finished like indoor plumbing in 1943 with mm-hmm. that whole Chicago project, which makes you think... Well, then our grandparents were doing that, throwing it well, out the window. Well, they had outhouses. I mean, in yeah. our area, my family does come from a, an agricultural background. Mm-hmm. So they had basically outhouses. They didn't need to throw anything anywhere. Which sounds better than yeah. people in the city would have had it then. Yeah, and that's why the great. diseases were rampant in the cities back mm-hmm. in the day, too. It was very, very dirty. They said that originally uh, plumbing systems used to just back up so you would have fish and all kinds of things in your bathtub when you turned the water on. They said it was just so rudimentary back in the time, and I thought, wow. If ever you've uh, visited Europe, mm-hmm. on any medieval castle, which is sort of the thing that I love to study, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, some of these monarchs or even, you know, non, non-specific royalties, they would have essentially plumbing. They would have a hole, like an outhouse built in yeah. with a slide, if you will, yeah. where all the excrement can slide down and okay. then there would be a dude who would be in charge of taking care of cleaning that up. Unbelievable, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's wild. I think one of the greatest things about <laughs> history, and a friend of mine and I constantly discuss this, he says, you ever want to feel great about your day if you're having a hard week? He goes, read some stuff about history. And he says, you'll realize we live so far beyond the means of a mm-hmm. king back in the day or queen mm-hmm. that royalty didn't have any of the things that we have. No, they We're had, constantly they comfortable. Had to use- you know, chamber pots and very fancy chamber pots. Yeah, it's basically, you know, you're doing your business on a slide mm-hmm. and some person has to take care of that. <laughs> I mean, that must have been something to realize. And obviously, we can go back to Charlie Chaplin since we went off topic a little <laughs> bit. But when we go back to Charlie Chaplin, it's quite interesting how he went from, you know, a childhood in London, England. Yeah. And then he came to the U.S. And I mean, during his lifetime, you had two world wars happen. Mm-hmm. And that's quite the impact, too. Maybe it did change his humor or his outlook. Definitely changed the topics that he was uh, creating films about. True. But I think Mm -hmm. that he was a huge break for people. Like I was mentioning, I think he, people needed an escape. And I think that that's one of the big reasons that a lot of those names at that time in film became so popular is because people needed them. Can't imagine living uh, during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Can't imagine what that would have been like. And even his production of his films were heavily impacted by that. But, you know, prospered through it. And I think a lot of people appreciated that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting time. And like, we're not talking about hundreds of years ago. No. We're talking about just last century. Mm-hmm. Well, a hundred years ago. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. The 1900s. Yeah. Oh. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Dang it. Yeah. I'm from the 1900s. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the early 1900s for sure when he started. Yeah. And to be such a young child too, I mean, to be, you know, 10 and then 12, move away. Yeah. Having lost your father. And that trip took him across. It wasn't an airplane ride no. necessarily on a You've Boeing, taken a whatever. ship across. Yeah. The whole deal. Scurvy. <laughs> yes, scurvy. But yeah. And, and I mean, can you imagine right now sending a 10 or 11 year old kid across even on a plane ride is, mm-hmm. I mean. I'm, even on it, a bus ride. It might happen. But Never yeah. mind a plane. There you go. That's yeah. more comparable on yeah. a bus ride. Yeah, even on a bus ride, you'd be terrified. Shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what's going to happen to your kid and there's strangers out there, but there he goes. To a different content. Yeah. What are you going to do now? Oh, I'm going to get a job. What? And I'm going to create some different content and do something that's not well known. So, but both his parents being actors, his dad being like a vocalist and his mom also being a singer. I guess he was around that, that style, that theater, that, you know, that yeah, company. Somebody with the flair, mm-hmm. the dramatic side to his life. Mm-hmm. Probably very encouraging as well, yeah. I would imagine. He did sing. He mm-hmm. sang well in, in a number of his films. And, you know, it makes you wonder. The whole time, was he waiting for the invention of sound to become possible in theaters oh. so that he could show off his vocal side? Yes. It makes you wonder if they, they knew it was coming and, oh, it's just not possible for this one. Sorry, Charlie, we'll do it in the next film. And then, okay, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to sing. 
You know? And they're like, oh, you can sing. Yeah, it started with a live band okay. originally back in the day, just playing over a soundtrack. Or in the theaters, it was just a band playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, sheet music, I assume. They would play while the mm-hmm. silent film was shown? Yep, until I guess they revolutionized that whole thing and they had sound. And how did the, the sound film? start? So they would shoot on film, like on the film strips as you were discussing. Yep. What sort of way was the inspiration to that sound? Well, it's kind of interesting because the, the sound really never coordinated with much of the film. It just played as kind of a background track and then you saw like the captions come up of what they had to say if there was words missing that you couldn't hear. But I don't know. I don't know if, if there was any coordination between the two until it became a better technology yeah. with sound. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That's a great question. You know, one scene never went from one scene to another scene with uh, really dramatic music that I can recall. So it's very, very different than what we're used to now. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's so tailored now for every single moment. Every yes. strike of a symbol is one guy the looking... the cello coming in and somebody, yeah. you know, it was, that uh, dramatic moment. It was much simpler then. So then the composer mm. was composing music maybe more on the emotion of the whole film. So would they have Seems seen it? That way. If it was a dramatic film, it was sort of that dramatic music... Or if it was a silly film. It seemed to be that way, and it stayed playful for most of it. Because they did switch themes of music in the movies, but that's a, you got me on a couple of great things that I'd like to research <laughs> now that I hadn't contemplated before. It's, I always have questions. I apologize. That's great. No, no, I love it. It's giving me all these great things. I'm going to listen to this and go back and go, oh, yeah, right, pause, Google need, it, yeah. find all these interesting things. Don't just Google it. Go into a book. I'll get into Dust a book. Dust off for my sure. favorite things. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, you know what? I'm still waiting to inherit. My, my father has um, an encyclopedia, Tannica set from oh, I 1984, I think, which is the year I was born. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told him, I said, whenever you want to get rid of those, those are going to my house. Because the knowledge of that, although not updated since the 80s, doesn't yeah. matter. You can open up any one of those and just sit there and go through these little thin, intricate pages. I'm still shocked that they created such a, like a, and they did, what, I think, once a, once a year until... They had know. updates, yeah. yeah. When I was a kid, I ran out of things to read, and I started reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> and I got up to about G or H, and then I got bored. <laughs> Alphabetically getting through. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So I learned about all kinds you of stuff. You got to G. I got to G or H. It was I don't even there. know if I got to page 50 on A. <laughs> I'm a real nerd when it comes to books, sorry. Yeah. I would go to the index and I'd just find something I thought was good and then flip to it and read. I can just imagine you, Jerry, sitting at home reading one letter and saying every conversation from now on will be S. Something. That's it. I'll start with J for Jerry. Okay, then. And I'll go go in there and I'll come back the next time I talk to you. I'll have all these things based on J topics. Yeah. yeah. I gotta know now. Now I have to go and, like, at least I'll be like, Dad, I'm just gonna need one. I'm gonna move one at a time to my house. I'm gonna start with J. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. So we often talk about Charlie Chaplin as being a comedian in uh, vaudeville. Yeah. I, I probably mangled that, of course. Yeah, vaudeville. So, close. what exactly was it? What was its style? Don't or start what with was that it? question. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. No. I only know the term. And was the it expression a style of, it. of film? See, I originally of... had thought that it was a location like Hollywood, but Hollywood's mm-hmm. not just a location either. It is the conceptualization and the mm-hmm. creation and the arts, right? So, vaudeville, I don't know. Maybe an early, a real early version of Hollywood, maybe? I don't know. Because they always talk about the vaudeville era, so maybe it was just a time where. That would definitely be something to research. Gosh, yeah. So, you've heard of the term. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've heard of some of these players, if you yep. will, during this time. So there would be Charlie Chaplin. Who else would have been sort of your favorites in this era? That you know what? I'm, I'm so specific to Charlie Chaplin <laughs> and... and... That would probably be it. And I'd have to research the specific era of when people were referring to vaudeville. I can't describe it when I when I hear people talk about vaudeville. I'm thinking of like burlesque yeah. and like the like the flair 
of what was going on. So maybe on it was there. just the flair of comedy was sort yeah, of the maybe. style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. It'd be interesting to find out more about vaudeville. Yeah, well, now you said it again. <laughs> I'm just going to listen to this and go, oh, yes, vaudeville. So Charlie Chaplin in itself, his persona and his style was very specific to him. There didn't seem to be many around that time who had the same style. There was some that came later, as we've discussed prior. His style of, of comedy? But mm-hmm. they hadn't created a character that became so famous. So iconic, really. So iconic. And you know what? Other people could do the same thing, but because they didn't have that character. Groucho Marx had a character. I don't know what it was, but it mm-hmm. was sort of like a tramp in a sense. But the way that Charlie Chaplin introduced it, people fell in love with the, co- the comedic genius that he was. I can't imagine in an era when television wasn't a thing and that it was only live theater performances that this big thing with sound, picture, music was happening. And then you'd walk out. And I can just imagine, you know, like when you were a kid and you'd walk out of a theater and there was just that buzz of excitement. Definitely magical. Very magical. I can't even imagine at that specific time. And I mean, people had radios back then. So they were used to the sound. So now you're getting no sound or an orchestra, but no actual sound to the film and just a visual. That must have been such a flip from what they're used to listening to these talk shows or radio hosts and comedic hours, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I used to listen to a lot of this stuff. I can't remember what the series was called. And people used to go on and they they would tell stories and they didn't know sometimes that they were stories about the world ending. I can't remember the famous Mm -hmm. one that happened. People thought it was a real broadcast about the world ending and aliens landing and all these other things. Like people would just put a radio, everybody would sit around, fill their pipe, pack it. And then you had educators who would go on and do educational series. and Such a different time, and I hope that there is an appreciation for that for generations to come of what Chaplin came up with. And uh, like you said, Rowan Atkinson doing mm-hmm. his Mr. Bean. And, and that's it. He was never famous as Rowan Atkinson, just like Charlie Chaplin was known as the Tramp. Mm-hmm. Or as Charlie Chaplin, and not never referred to as Charles. And uh, we know him as Mr. Bean. 90% of the people probably don't know who Rowan Atkinson is. But he created his own unique mime character just like that. And I hope that another person comes along as as slapstick and physical comedy seems to be kind of the way of the past. I hope that someone can reinvigorate that in a new way. It must definitely be very difficult having all of these predecessors that have done it so well. It takes a very specific person. How do you modernize such a concept like that? And what would be the qualities for this kind of... Comedy. I mean, you need to have a good physicality, as you've said, a sense of timing when it comes to comedy. And it has to be relatable. True. And that's where Mr. Bean's, he was like the mindset of like an eight-year-old child in every skit, you know? Oh, I'm Mm -hmm. late for this. I have to do this. But how do I get in here? Maybe I can do this. His solutions for everything were always so physical that you're like, I've thought of that, but I would never do it. But here he is trying it. I think one of his famous ones that I think that was memorable was him trying to take off his bathing suit in front of someone. And how he had done it was like the first time I'd ever seen anyone do it. (laughs) And then at the end of the skit, the guy ends up being blind next to him. And I thought, that's so genius. It is. You feel like you figured it out. You had a laugh with him. And then at the end, you're like, oh, Oh, I got fooled the whole yes. time. Well done. It's almost its own version of, of like a murder mystery. Yeah. But, you know, a murder mystery, you're looking like, let's say, the murder on Orient Express. A phenomenal. All these yeah. people are just like, who's done it? Who's done it? Who's done it? And when it comes to this, you know, Charlie Chaplin or even Mr. Bean, as you mentioned, it's always like, what's the next thing happening? Mm-hmm. And you just can't predict it sometimes. That's right. You're playing along as the audience and just like all of the people on the Orient Express, you're, you're part of that mm-hmm. crowd. And you're you feel accomplished sure. at the end like they do, right? You really yeah. follow along the whole story like that. And yeah, such a nice roller coaster it's a neat to ride. Parallel. In the Charlie Chaplin era, mm-hmm. if you could take a time machine and go back, would you want to talk to him? Oh, absolutely. I'd want to know what his motivation was to start such a massive concept. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that nobody starts something like that 
with the knowledge that it will become so big. No. But it seems like from everything I've read, he knew he wanted to do something and nothing stopped him. No matter what he had done, he just kept fighting to do it. And my question would be, what was your motivation? I'm always curious to know what motivates a person to do anything that they accomplish. And like you were saying, when something really uh, traumatic happens to someone, it just propels you to get to the top, mm -hmm. avoiding all the sidelines and just getting to your goal. That would be my question. I go, listen, what's motivating you to do this and to just keep doing it, continuously doing it? I get that it was a passion, but how did it start? He must have had an idea of where he was going to some degree. Yeah, it didn't look like chance. Went around the world to do it, so he knew where he had to be. And yeah. he did head to Hollywood. He headed straight to Hollywood, yeah. I would definitely go back and have a conversation with, uh, with him and a, a few others if I could take the time to think about it. But yeah, absolutely. Primary question, what's your motivation? What is your motivation? Why are you here? And what do you think you're going to achieve? And you'd have to catch him before he really got into it. And then after, if you caught him after, it would be what were your obstacles? Yeah. What Absolutely. did you overcome, essentially? Yep. And you can find some of those things, you know, you can find them in writing in some of his interviews, but I've never seen the start. Like, mm -hmm. I think I'm going to go do film. <laughs> well, where did you get that idea from? Who inspired yeah. you? Your parents? Well, you wanted to yeah. take the next step and put it on film? I, that would be pretty interesting. I'd get a kick out of that. Well, I guess that wraps it up <laughs> at that point. We want to thank Jerry for delighting us with Charlie Chaplin. I mean, anybody who came into this not knowing anything, such as me, it's really nice to hear about different things surrounding Charlie Chaplin. So, you know, the film industry around the time, even some of the modern elements that you've added are very, very interesting. So I, I appreciate your take on all of it. It's well, really thank great. you very much for having me and uh, giving me so many things to go home and research. <laughs> <laughs> By some of your very good questions. By some of very my insightful. bizarre questions. Yeah, no. I'm I going home to questions. find vaudeville now. <laughs> that's the first one. <laughs> That'll, that's where I'm going to start. Yeah. And then you'll have to go back and figure out what the other questions were. <laughs> yep, that's it. I'll just listen to this one. Everyone else does. Well, it was very fun. I appreciate this time. This was excellent. Well, I'm happy you came. Super. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Now, my love of books, I need to share this with you. So every time I'm going to do a book recommendation... Not sure if I'm going to be able to do a fiction and nonfiction. Sometimes they might be both fiction and sometimes they might be both nonfiction. Let's see where we're at depending on the episode. Today I actually have two nonfiction books. So we have Charlie Chaplin's autobiography. And then we have a collection of a story that he wrote put together by David Robinson and Cecilia Sengiarelli. I apologize if that's completely off. And now wrap up. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at History A. You can also visit the website to have those direct links. You can email me, send me your comments. I love hearing from you. And if you scrolled on this podcast, you should have all these show notes that we've mentioned. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you can also rate me on iTunes. Since I'm totally new to this, I actually don't know what iTunes ratings does, but apparently it's really good. I'm imagining some algorithmic elves that are throwing magic around and just make life better. Thank you to my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, as well as our families, our friends, for all their encouragement in keeping me adventuring through history. They also have this crazy belief in my abilities, so un grand merci.